The Reset Podcast is sponsored by Bose. With my new Bose QC35 headphones, nothing gets between me and my music. The noise canceling is world class. They're completely Bluetooth, so there's no wires. The sound is amazing. My producer and I love these so much that we use them to record every single show. For more information about Bose QC35 headphones and other Bose products, check out Bose.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Reset Podcast. I'm your host, Lauren Mignot, co-founder of the brand experience agency, Digital Flash, and we're coming to you from New York City. Each week, I bring an influential friend from marketing, business, or even government, and we'll delve into what's really happening in the industry and try and make sense of it all. Of course, we can't talk about marketing without talking about how it impacts this very moment in time. We'll laugh, we'll debate, and we'll give frank insight into the ongoing reset of the world of marketing and how to navigate your way through, all while enjoying wine and french fries on my couch. Today's episode, I am so delighted to have Avis Yates Rivers, CEO of Technology Concepts Group International. We talked extensively about the fact that she was a real life tech hidden figure and her new book, Necessary Inclusion, about making tech far more diverse. Take a listen. It'll be fun. Avis, it's so lovely to have you. Thank you, Laura. It's my pleasure to be here. What was your first job? Laura, my first job was as a Videc operator. Now, for for those folks who are maybe born since 1980, Videc was the first full screen word processor on the market. And I was hired by Exxon Corporation to to serve as a Videc operator. It was a word processing job. Whoa, whoa, whoa. H- how old were you when you had this job? W- why are we going there? <laughs> <laughs> I thought you liked me. <laughs> you were like, listen, I was 12. <laughs> I was probably five or six. No, I had. Uh, I was in college. And how did you manage to get this job as, you know, um, of all the jobs you get when you're in college? I feel like bank... Or like customer service or like the typical jobs you get in college. How did that how did that occur? The college I attended, part of CUNY, City University of New York, LaGuardia College, was uh, an internship school. And so I actually did three internships during my years at college at all at Exxon Corporation. At Exxon? Exxon. Really? Yes. yes. In Rockefeller Center. Exxon was in New York? Exxon was big in New York, yes, and New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Wow. Before they moved all of the operations uh, down to Texas. But I worked for Exxon Corporation, and they were a big supporter of LaGuardia's internship program. And so I was very blessed to have done all three of my three-month internships there. And they hired me upon graduation, so I've never really technically interviewed for a job. Oh, wait a moment. How has someone as successful as you been able to never actually interview for a job? Like, how is that even possible? (laughs) Exxon's the only corporation I've ever worked for. And so after serving in corporate roles for about seven years, they launched their office systems division. They put a lot of uh, investment into technology products back then in the late 70s. And they decided in 1980 to bring all of those technology products together and launch Exxon Office Systems Company. And I went into that corporate, into that division to sell those products. Wow. Okay, so I think we need to back up. 
Avis, what do you do now? <laughs> because like I think I feel like I we stumped could, we, you, Laura. You didn't uh, know how old I was. <laughs> I, I was like, wait a minute. Oh no, she's. I I had a number, and now uh, that number is not the number. I think it is anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so I think it would be great if you sort of told us like what you're doing now, and then kind of how it all ties together. Because that to me is fascinating. That one, you work for Exxon, because. When I think of people who work for Exxon, you are not it. (laughs) Um, Which is a testament to how amazing you are. Um, But also just how you've been able to now build something completely separate on your your own and, and be in the tech industry for... A co- for for a couple of years, a couple of years, mm-hmm. start well, well, Exxon was um, was integral in my success, and so once they launched a technology division, and I went to work there for five years, I sold early tech on Wall Street in Midtown Manhattan. How was that like as a black woman? It was it was not that unique actually. Really? Because on my team there was another black woman in sales. Our sales manager was a black woman and our um head of the 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 department was a black man. So we had all kinds of diversity back in 1970s and 80s that seemed to kind of disappear over years. But it how was that, not wh- that unusual. So question for you. I mean, how does that ch- – why do you think that changed? Because like, I, I, and I'm not saying it facetiously. Like hearing that you were a salesman, a, a saleswoman for Exxon – is fascinating and amazing, but like when I again when I think of a person who works for Exxon, I think of old white dude. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so where do you think that shift came? Like what they made those investments early on. It sounds like when they were at LaGuardia to sort of get students who were in the city, which by default would lead to more diverse students anyway. Right. And so it seemed like there then was a shift, or, or or when your experience over the time that you were there, it was always relatively diverse. It was always relatively diverse. Wow. My first department. Mass- Manager, even in as a Vidac operator, was a black female. So it was always diverse. I always had role models. I always had supports, supporters, and champions throughout the organization. It was just not that unusual. Uh, I was blessed, you know, definitely know that. And as I look back over those thirty something years, I can see how things just came to be, fell into place. Um, every step, every move, I can look back and see now how integral and important it was. But the, my my um, department manager of New York Midtown sales office, he took a chance on me. I was in Exxon Corporate. I was not a salesperson. I had never gone to sales training. But there were some characteristics that people recognized that would they thought would make me successful in sales, and so fabulous did, fashion sense. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> Just my my love of people, my ability to talk. You know, my outgoing nature. Now, what people did find unusual back then was that I was there selling technology, not barrels of oil. That same Exxon. That's all they knew. Remember, Exxon was the number one company on the Fortune 500 list forever back then and even after I had left. And so it was more perplexing to people who I was trying to sell technology to that I was there not trying to sell them oil. And the technology that you were selling were what? This was very early technology. So hold on to your seat now. We're talking 
Internet, maybe? No. No, no. This is well before then. Think 1980. This is pre-PC. So there weren't even personal computers invented yet. So what we had instead to sell was, um, it was called an information processor, information technology processor. Basically a, a fancy word processor. Remember, I started with the Vidac, which was the first full screen word processor. And then that landed or went into the information technology processor. I sold very large one screen electronic typewriters that were $10,000 back then for one line <laughs> display. One line? One line display. If you, That's if amazing. If you returned off of that line, you were in trouble. You, couldn't, you just saw that line then and I how many characters could you go across I don't remember but not that many I'm thinking 30 something yeah that's like a micro tweet (laughs) a micro tweet for ten thousand dollars very very different from today Uh, I sold the first facsimile machines on the market and back then a page took six minutes but I sold them by the bundles people had to have them because the next best thing was overnight so or, you would be, you'd rather wait six minutes to get a piece of paper than wait for overnight. It was all, all the rage, and it was a lot less expensive too. Oh my gosh! Mm-hmm. It, it just—it's funny when you think about where we are now and right. like how impatient we are now. That if, if my email doesn't come within like two seconds after I hit send, mm-hmm. I'm like, where's my email? Where's my email? Right. And now, but you know what? We're gonna look back in twenty, thirty years on these days and think the same ridiculous things that w- that we're talking about now. How could that be considered technology? How can what we're using today, you know, personal computers and laptops and tablets and smartphones, how could we have existed with this, you know, stuff? this thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I guarantee you, in ten years, not even we don't have to wait twenty years, thirty years. We'll look back with the. Or our children and grandchildren will look back and just thought, wow, those were the dark, dark ages. Yeah, mm-hmm. we're, all, we're all in the chorus. So mm-hmm. you're selling technology mm-hmm. and, you know, obviously kicking ass repeatedly. Very sex- successful. And mm-hmm. like, you know, cash is flowing everywhere. Mm-hmm. And then so how long did you stay at Exxon? Until they left. Exxon sold that division um, five years in. They were late to the market. They were competing against IBM, Xerox, and Wang, and they had spent a lot of money. They had a lot of money to spend, you know. The biggest company in the world. Right. (laughs) Um, But they decided that they it was time to sell that division, and so they sold that division. I'm now an Exxon employee for 11 years, and for the first time in my life, I'm not. Again, college, right into work, and it's the only company that I've ever worked for. And so— at that time, for me, the next best logical career move was to launch my first company. And that's what I did. January 1st, 1985. Wow. Mm-hmm. You're like, I'm not going back to work in a party. <laughs> well, you know, I, it took a lot of soul searching. It took a lot of um, prayer and, and consternation. And I tell fo- young folks this, writing down the pros and cons of that decision you know, really taking some time to to debate. I knew I did not want to go in back into a corporate Exxon job. I'm I'm now a salesperson. I'm at the highest uh, rank of account executive. I found my niche. I love what I do. I love the people. And this was also uh, pre-terrorism days. So I, I had a very vertical territory. I can walk into any trade center, tower, or 120 Broadway, or any of my buildings and just stay there all day. Knock on every door. 
It was really an exhilarating time for me because I never knew what was behind door number three. Wow. But, but I was just excited and fearless, and it, it really did create the characteristics that I needed you to just be an knew. entrepreneur. You know, it's, it's interesting that you say that because I think a lot of folks think that they have to start a business right out of college. Mm-hmm. And I'm always... And I see a lot, and I get to, and I meet a ton of young folks, and I'm always like, "No, please go work for someone. Yeah. You need someone to yell at you. You need to fail, yeah. and you need to actually understand what it means to make money yeah. and to and not have money because, and it's somebody else's before you can go out and do it on your own. Because Absolutely. once you go down that road, you know what you can tolerate, know what you can't tolerate, and and you know what you're actually good at, and and the idea that like, oh, well, what I learned in college was enough, I think is so, is such a misnomer. Uh, and, and I think this sort of instantaneous culture, it's like the idea that people had the patience to wait six minutes for one page of a fax. Right. And now people don't have patience to wait for a tweet. That's right. <laughs> That's right. And I agree with you. I encourage people to go learn on someone else's dime or a couple of someone else's dimes because you really don't know all of your skills, all of what you're good at, or even what you enjoy until you explore and, and be out there a little bit. So I, I totally agree with you. I and encourage so, people. Okay, people so it's 85. That. You're like, okay, new mm-hmm. year, new year, new, new me. Mm-hmm. You start your company. What's your company? My company was created to fill that void. Exxon abandoned, not not abandoned in a bad way, but they exited the industry. Right. They, were, they had nothing left to do with it. The company that bought us only wanted the install base to get that old Exxon gear out and get their new gear in, their shiny new toys in there. So they didn't even want to upsell anything. It was like, let's just let's re-go back in. They couldn't. They couldn't. They didn't know it. And so they really was just interested in the base of customers. So that same base of customers still needed some support. And so for the first couple of years, that's who we were. We were known to be the providers of service and support for those companies who had invested in Exxon equipment. So my first customers were Exxon Corporation, New York Times, (laughs) AT&T, Hoffman LaRoche, you know, all those companies who had made major investments in that technology. And they weren't just going to rip it out because Exxon decided to to move on. Mm -hmm. And so you just walk back and say, hey, I I, I started my own company now, so I can just give this to you and pay me direct. Well, what what happened was Exxon, I was able to get the install base of customers. And I always, this is how I knew that I was an entrepreneur. I knew there was a need that needed to be filled. And to this day, I get up every day looking to solve problems for customers. And that's what an entrepreneur does. And so once they realized that we could could train new people coming in who, who that was going to be their tool, Nobody else was out here doing any training. Exxon's gone. New company doesn't know. So you this built stuff. the business and you, from the ground up, and you're like, "Listen, we'll just solve all these problems for you. Yeah. Just pay me." Yeah. And you're like, "Yes, please did. do." That's what we did. So for the first couple of years, that's what we did. I there were also some people who were leaving Exxon Office Systems. Everybody left Exxon Office Systems, who were going to be in need of a job, especially those on the sales support and admin staff. So I was able to employ folks pretty much right away after the first year who needed who had the skill 
And I needed their expertise, as did the customers. So that's how we got started. Today, we're totally different. Five companies later, totally different (laughs) from, from that, of course. But that was taking advantage of a window of opportunity and being fearless enough. And remember, I got my chops from just knocking and walking into hundreds of company doors in my vertical territory, not knowing how I was going to be received, perceived, welcomed, um, ejected, but just stealing myself and cr- creating my nerves. But I got this. To go in. <laughs> yeah. So that, that served me well. And so where are you today with regard to your to your empire? <laughs> <laughs> empire from your lips. <laughs> today, my empire is global. We are a company that helps large buying organizations to streamline and improve the way they procure their goods and services. So think about these big corporations that I've named, including Exxon and lots of others and lots of industries. They spend hundreds of millions of dollars a year on new technology every year. And then they also spend billions of dollars on lots of other things, right? And they have a lot of that spend, about 80% of it, kind of in under control. Uh, we call it under management with contracts, big global suppliers. But then there's that 20% of the spend that's not managed. And that's what we help companies to do. We call that the tail. It's the tail end of the spend. And we provide tailspin management. We develop something called integrated IT procurement, where we help them buy their technology better. Uh, we help them to consolidate their supply chain. Typically, these large corporations, their, su- their base of suppliers are in the thousands. Why do you need 500 suppliers of widget X? Whatever. So, but it proliferates because no one has time to really keep it under management. And so it does get out of control because these companies, they're buying all over the world and they're not necessarily buying from the same base of suppliers. Sometimes it's a local buy and it needs to be a local buy. Imagine temps. You're not going to ship a temporary worker from New York to, um, I don't know, Singapore. Right. You know, so some of it needs to be local. But there's a lot more leveraging of their spend that can be accomplished for tremendous cost savings, simplification, and other um, positive outcomes. And we also have our new technology platform that we launched last uh, October called eProcure, which automates a lot of those manual processes. And so, how did you get to how did you get to that point in in the fifth company? Listening. You're just like, okay, there's this problem. Listening to the needs. And so you've and have you ever gone outside of this sort of universe of like big corporate sort of problem solving? Like how's how how have you managed how have you managed to be an entrepreneur for thirty plus years? By failing and learning from those failures. Um I did venture into the federal government space. I don't know if you've heard of the 8A program. It's yeah. the federal government contracting arena. Yeah, I've heard that. And, like where I should be going because we're at WMBE. Yeah. And I'm like, this just sounds like a disaster for us. If, if the federal government is not a primary target, then don't waste your time. But for me, I, we were already in corporate. 
we the federal government is the largest buyer of everything. Right. So All the it, stuff. It's a great market, but it requires a lot more of everything, of you. And so we did go into that federal government. We did go into 8A program. We were providing third-party maintenance of all different types of computers and printers at the time. And we've got some pretty significant contracts. But I have to tell you, after seven, eight, nine years, I was ready to leave the plantation and go back <laughs> into corporate America. <laughs> Oh my goodness! It's El, just, it, it was that. It was that real. It was just so cumbersome and onerous like, nope. and uh-uh. papers work up to here. I just wanted to solve problems. We just want to provide the. It's these okay. Services. You just send me a wire and shut up already. Yeah, no wires, no wires, no, no margin to speak of. They don't like for you to make a whole lot of money, oh, just God. a little bit, and and Lord. yet they consume you. So. Uh, once once my um, graduation was coming close, I was happy to go back to corporate America where I belonged. And so... Well, you could control it. And you were like, okay, I can... I it was can just more business focus. Remember? Right. And, and when you're not profit motivated, things can take two years. Easy. Right. There's, okay, we'll get to that next year or next year or next year. But when you're profit motivated, you're trying to... Um, deliver value back to your co- corporate organization. You're trying to make sure that you're driving value to shareholders. And everybody's about cost-cutting. I don't care how much cash is on their, on that balance sheet, everyone is focused on cost-cutting. And so we're always looking for ways to help companies reduce their costs, um, not impact their quality, get to market faster, and potentially generate more revenue. That's that's the space that I've always lived in. Well, that's interesting because I find, well, one of the things I find super fascinating about you is the fact that you're actually in the industry where more people should actually attempt to go into instead of widget over here, widget over there, this apple, you know, make my puppy roll over versus something where you're actually solving a problem. And that's the thing that I, I find so frustrating because, like, for example, I didn't know who you were. Mm. Like, I work in I work in this industry of technology and startups, okay, for, like, seven, eight years. Prior to that, I spent another six, seven years in advertising. Mm-hmm. And I figured I was pretty up and up on about in terms of people who look like me who are in technology. And it wasn't until I went to the Hidden Figures event where you were speaking where I was like, Avis, oh, my goodness. Who is she? Yeah, mm-hmm. I was like, she's she's dressed like just like I would be. Like she's got like she's got on heels and like a silk shirt and like fitted jeans. And I'm like, that's the person I want to talk to because <laughs> that's what I wear. Um, but it, it was the fact that like you're someone who so many more folks in our industry should know about because you actually have a real job. You've mm-hmm. been a real entrepreneur versus a lot of the fluff and bluster yeah. with like app number one and app number two that always come out. How have you managed to stay under the radar so well? Under the radar? Yeah. I just got my head down. I'm trying to... You do work. I have a goal in mind. Okay, so I've been an entrepreneur for 32 years. I don't want to be an entrepreneur for another 32 years. You know, there's just not that many years. And so I've got my end game and my end goal in mind. So I don't need the fame and the fluff. I'm trying to achieve my global expansion 
my intellectual property, which we just launched uh, our, our new platform. And we have expanded globally in Southeast Asia, but there's a lot more world for us to get into. Conquer. <laughs> and um, my, re- my sales, my top line sales, those three things that are packaging and positioning me for acquisition. So I'm focused. I'm very strategic. I'm, I don't have time for a lot of fluff right now. I'm trying to get this job done because my husband's been retired for, I don't know, 15 years. And uh, I leave him in the bed every morning. And you're like, I got to go. <laughs> I'm thinking, uh, what's wrong with this picture? <laughs> my golf game, my, my golf handicap can use some shaving down. You know, I, I got other things to do. You, you have things to I do. Got things I got things to do. I got, I got but, but the most thing that I want to do and be focused on now is being in service and encouraging more young girls and boys who look like me that a career in technology can be whatever you want it to be. Whatever you imagine it it can be. Great segue. So I read your book. Uh, That was fast. Because I'm a pretty voracious reader. And, you know, first of all, um, Amos' book is called Necessary Inclusion. We'll put a link to it on Amazon on in the show notes. Please buy it. Uh, Thank you. Repeatedly, please buy her book. <laughs> you know why? Because it's written by someone who does the work. And I you know that was the thing I found the most thought-provoking around it, that you just do the work. And I think the problem we have today is that it's so much about, oh, let me find that quick fix and solution to like, Skip all 18 steps you have to do. And you're like, nope, do the work. So what prompted you to write the book? Because of what you just said, actually, that so many women that may be in technology are hidden. You know, just like the movie we saw a couple of weeks ago. There's so many stories about women and people of color contributing to technological innovation that we don't know. But even... Worse is the fact that there are so few women and people of color in technology so that the great technology that we're using today was predominantly invented by a homogenous group of people. So when you have that scenario, there is not the the diverse perspectives and, and approaches to problem solving that our experience and our culture brings to the table. Only when that can happen in a broader way will we have technology as rich and deep and diverse as the people who invent it. And that's when technology will get to the point where it's great. We think it's great now. We have no idea the hidden geniuses that are out there that are just not been tapped yet. And so... Um, that's why I wrote the book. It's called Necessary Inclusion, Embracing the Changing Faces of Technology, because if we don't get this right, we'll have hundreds of thousands of tech jobs continue to go unfilled in this country, created by our companies, uh, and enforcing an over-dependence on importing talent. That's not sustainable. As a business owner, I look for sustainable solutions. It's not sustainable when we have millions of people in our country who are either unemployed, underemployed, low-skilled, former industries that have disappeared like manufacturing, who could be retrained to do a lot of these technology jobs. They're high-paying 
They're flexible business hours that can be done a lot of times from anywhere. And I believe that when we get these two massive people who are looking for work and who could be doing the work and all these open and unfilled jobs together will solve a lot of the country's bigger social ills like homelessness and hunger and and housing crisis and crime. And you give a person the tools to do a job and earn a living wage, then that's what they're going to do. Most people want to do that. They just don't have the access and the opportunity. And so I advocate for embracing the changing phases of technology, doing those things that encourages girls to think about a career in technology and look beyond the image of the geeky, nerdy, white guy, sorry guys, you know, who wants to just sit in the back room and not talk to people. You know, they just want to be on their computer. That's the image that the media has portrayed of who a technology or an engineer or an architect is. And we just have to do more to break down those stereotypes of who invents technology. So that's my number one passion and call and, and purpose for being right now. Mm-hmm. It's so, and it's so necessary to be included. Yeah. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. You know, because it, it's, I 100% agree with you. Because like, and I think, you know, they think that everyone has to be Mark Zuckerberg. I'm like, no. And that's why I was saying like, I was calling out what you were wearing, but we also because like, I think that's also really important. Yes. That it's like, I don't look like someone who's never left my house <laughs> and right. has to shower in five days. I'm like, no, I am fabulous. Yes. I am who I am. I, you, you can, but also you so you automatically can't gave off this approachable vibe mm-hmm. as opposed to oftentimes when you deal with a lot of people in tech where it's like, I don't want to talk to you because you seem like you're not the friendliest person in the world. Right. And I feel like that's something that needs to sort of begin to come across like this. You don't have to give up your soul and your personality to go work in tech. No. You can infuse the job that you get in technology with your personality. We you need to- it. We need all of you in technology. Yeah. So tell us more about the, the Sit With Me campaign and, and your red chair here. Okay. Well, the Sit With Me campaign is a product of the National Center for Women and IT. It's named NCWIT, ncwit.org. NCWIT was chartered back in 2005 by the National Science Foundation to solve this problem of decreasing participation of women in technology. You know, we used to have, we talked about the good old days. Right. We used to have a lot more women in technology in the late, mid to late 80s than we do today. In fact, it's taken a nosedive, the percentage. It was up around 37%. Now think, you know, it, it had dropped to like 18, 19%. And and now it's up around 25, but clearly something happened. To cause it. Yeah. To cause that decrease. And, and, and even today, women in tech leave the field about 56% of the time by the time they reach mid-career. Everyone just assumes that they're going to have families or to do, not at all. They stay in the workforce. They're just leaving that company or leaving that manager or that supervisor. It's still a very unwelcoming 
um, environment for a lot of these large corporations who were created by men for men maybe hundreds of years ago. And it takes a very long time for culture to change. So what do you think happened? Because as you said in the beginning, you had black female managers, you had black male managers, and you were a salesperson. So you're out front. It wasn't like you were back in the back in the corner somewhere. No. What at, What do you think, I mean, happened that those workplaces changed and now I mean there's so many articles every single day about these toxic workplaces for women and technology companies and the bro culture was it just a was it just like a bunch of idiot guys who came to who who essentially rose to power and and decided to kick everybody out like I, I think a lot of those folks who definitely were in positions of leadership when I was very young and just starting my career they're gone you know, they've retired. They've moved on. Hopefully some of them are still alive, but they are gone. And and so the folks that have taken those places, uh, again, are those middle managers and, and, and corporate executives that have become increasingly white male. And people tend to hire people like them. There's, there's that mirroring um, phenomenon. And so it just has proliferated. I don't think it was it was any plan by the man, as my sister would call it. <laughs> it's just happened. And what happened then is you also began to get these younger companies in the tech space. I mean, if you think of all the, the tech giants, they're young companies. The Apples, the Googles, the Yahoos, they are babies compared to the Exxons and the Xeroxes and, you know, what I call the old line companies. And so I think the combination of the old line companies, the folks who were uh, diverse, have moved on and they were replaced by um, pre pretty much a homogenous group of white males. And the fact that the young tech companies have come about with these these young guys starting these companies in someone's garage or while it's still in school, and they didn't get the culture right at the beginning either. And so NCWIT is there to help companies to change their culture. A lot of social science research is done. A lot of resources have been developed in order to help Culture, companies change their culture. And for tech startups, get it right from the beginning. I mean, study after study have proven that um, companies that have more women on the board or in positions of senior leadership uh, experience more positive financial returns. It's just the way it is. It's just the way women contribute to the success of an organization. And so Sit With Me was born to broaden this conversation, dispel some myths. Um, it's a marketing outreach campaign. A lot of people I talk to don't even realize that we have a problem in this country because it's not mainstream media talk, right? It's become more so now since our last president brought the science fair into the White House and created champions of change in STEM and, and honored folks like myself. But there's still this void of knowledge and understanding that we have a problem in this country. And as an employer, we have a serious problem if we can't fill our jobs because now you're, you're impacting our ability to compete domestically, our ability as a country to compete globally, if we're just keep importing all this talent from the same places, that's still a homogenous group. 
Yeah, you, 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 it's a self-defeating purpose. Exactly. Like you're having the same problem. Now, instead of importing, uh, you, instead of having people who are from New York, you're importing people who are from India or from China, and they're all the same. They're all the same. So you, you, you're, <laughs> you're still getting the same. You're still getting the same. And so um, sit with me. The whole premise behind it is it, it's using this iconic red chair to invite people all people, in tech, out of tech, male, female, black, white, it doesn't matter, to sit with me. And by the way, my, my Twitter handle is sit with Avis. Sit with me. Tell me your story, especially women. Tell me how you've survived in tech. Tell me some of the, the experiences you've had. And tell me what you can do to help us solve this problem. And the chair itself is just an icon. But I need it to become as pervasive as the pink ribbon. When it started a couple of years ago, nobody knew what that meant. But everybody now knows what the pink ribbon means. We need to get the red chair as pervasive as that to signify that we're banding together. We're coming together for the common good. We're helping as many people along the way. And we can, we can make this happen. We can fix this. We've got enough intellectual property here to fix these problems. And so I liken it to uh, the symbol that, um, that Rosa Parks brings to mind. When she sat in the front of that bus in 1955 in Montgomery, she wasn't trying to start any trouble or to spark the civil rights movement or to make a statement. She was just tired. And she was tired of constantly giving in and giving up. She knew there would be repercussions, but she just saw a seat. She sat there. And that simple act of sitting down did spark the civil rights movement, and it did change the world. And I believe that once women and people of color are, have e equity in these high-paying jobs and the ability to create and become, um, to generate wealth and to create jobs, I believe we'll change the world. Awesome. Well, you know how to sum it all up together. <laughs> like, I don't just say anything more. <laughs> Other than thank you. Um, I, I, I can't thank you enough, Avis. And I, as I said, I want to do as much as I possibly can using my voice however I can to push this out because I too am like, there's no reason why we shouldn't have people who look like us who are intact. And, you know, it's not that we shout the loudest, but like we do the work. And the more that we can talk about doing the work, doing the work, putting the work in, and then, and also hiring people who look like us, I think is where we're going to, we're going to begin to see change. So I want to sincerely thank you for coming on the show. I'm going to call you a real life hidden figure. I am honored to finally get to know you and we still have to have our cocktails. <laughs> um, but thank you so much for being on the show. And uh, that's it for now. Thanks for joining us in the Reset Podcast. Thank you. The Reset Podcast is sponsored by Bose. With my new Bose QC35 headphones, nothing gets between me and my music. The noise canceling is world class. They're completely Bluetooth, so there's no wires. The sound is amazing. My producer and I love these so much that we use them to record every single show. For more information about Bose QC35 headphones and other Bose products, check out Bose.com. Audiation.